The Montserrat Retreat Easter in the Meantime by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 The Angelus Bell John Sr. said, The bell is the strike of silence. In a noisy world, it takes a striking sound within whose widening circles noise is hollowed out. Of course, we live in a world where the noise drowns out the bell. Leonard Cohen, the poet and songwriter and singer, said in one of his poems, Ring the bell that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So again, we live in troubled times. Things are broken or being breaking or being broken. But at the same time, it offers an opportunity. So I want to talk about this painting, this Millet painting called The Angelus. And I want you to look at that painting for a second and let us reflect on it, and I'll have a few thoughts. In that painting, perhaps the key to that painting is the church tower off on the right. And the two uh, French peasants with their heads bowed and her hands folded and his hat in his hand are quite obviously saying the Angelus. Because you see its effect on people. It brought them to prayer. And it's not insignificant that this is, apparently at least, husband and wife. This is a nuptial scene in a way. And that's appropriate as well because uh, nuptiality is, as John Paul II more or less argues in Theology of the Body, is the Trinitarian mystery in, in our lives. And so I want to speak a little about um, the birth of humanity. When did we humans show up? And it has to do with this scene, I think, in this painting. Uh, when did harmonization take place? And I will speak of it, and those of you who have been to many of these talks of mine know where I'm going with this, but I will speak of it in two ways. There are two scenes of harmonization. Uh, a cultural harmonization, and the one I'm going to speak about now, which is, one could call it, a spiritual harmonization or an ontological harmonization. Uh, When do we become humans, fully humans? Now, if you don't, if you think about it in a rather sloppy way, we're all influenced by Darwin and Darwinian thought and evolutionary thought, and so we tend to think, well, it's kind of a segue. You know, it's uh, the higher primates and and slowly but surely they learn how to use tools and then they do this and that and then you have humans at the other end. It doesn't work because even anthropologists acknowledge that it has to have happened, uh, as Levi Strauss says, at a stroke. 
What was that stroke? What caused it to happen, both in the cultural sense and in the ontological or spiritual sense? Where did we cross the threshold from the animal to the human world? Well, this is an imponderable as far as natural science is concerned. So where can we, and natural science will tell us, well, it was the invention of language. Yes, but how, how did that happen? Well, that's really inside the cultural question, the birth of harmonization at a cultural level. When did we become human in the ontological sense? The social sciences don't give us enough to go on. Where can we turn for some information about this? Well, obviously we can turn to lots of things, but the last place we would turn to is the Bible. The Genesis story, for example. I mean, obviously that's completely irrelevant to this scientific question we're trying to ask ourselves. But the Genesis story is the beginning of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, we learn something that throws light on the beginning. That's why Christians read it all the way to the end, and then they go back and start again. Because it's only when you see where it's going that you see what all, like you pick up all the, it's like a detective novel. It's at the end you find out, and you say, all the, I couldn't have guessed it, but since it happened, then I see all of these little clues all along. At the end of the Bible, it says, summing up, it's, well, it says this at the beginning of the Bible. It says we're made in the image and likeness of God. Made in the image and likeness of God. So that's, if you want to know when humans appeared, it's when creatures manifested, occurred on this planet who were made in the image and likeness of God. At the end of the Bible, we learn something about this God in whose image and likeness we were made. And that is that it is a Trinitarian God. It is a God of relationship. It is a God of self-donating relationship. So we're made in the image and likeness of a self-donating, other-oriented God. A God who gives himself constantly long before creation, in inside divinity itself. The persons of the Trinity are constantly deferring and offering glory and honor and love to one another constantly. So that is the God in whose image and likeness we are made. Well, when did humans show up? When did a creature show up who, who manifested that? God created Adam. And shortly thereafter said, it is not good that man should be alone. Why? He needs to help me. Why? To do the dishes? No. <laughs> what does he need help with? What does he need help with? He needs help to become a creature made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God. He can't do it on his own. He needs someone to whom he can give himself. And in that act of giving himself, he will be made in the image and likeness of God. 
So God said that he, it's not good that man should be alone. And then we have Adam naming the animals. It's an odd interlude here. But it's a, there's a little comic element in it. You see? It's a little catalog of the available helpmates. <laughs> None of them work. He names them, he names them, he names them, he names them. Still not someone he can give himself to. So God puts him to sleep and reaches in. The Bible says takes a rib. But we have to understand the way these internal organs are referred to in the Hebrew Scriptures. We could better say God reaches in and takes his heart, takes his heart out, and puts it into the woman. Adam wakes up and he says, This at last, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. John Paul II, a sitting pontiff, said that is effectively the celebration of the moment of harmonization. This at last the moment when a creature, theretofore unable to self-donate, a creature who shortly before that would have copulated, given birth to, etc., etc., and so on, all of the natural inclinations. But those nature had yet to be touched by grace. It is nature. It's all of the hormones. It's all of the sexual attraction. It's all of the natural impulses. But grace perfects nature. Nature, there's a kind of natural sacrament in the attraction, but then grace comes in. And it becomes an act of self-donation. And we have a moment of harmonization. Now, a word here about the church because you know when Christ is crucified his side is lanced and blood and water come out of his side and the church has always understood that as the sacramental outpouring of Christ's life into his church so we can say the new Adam has, uh, something has come out of the heart of the new Adam, which is another kind of harmonization, what St. Paul calls the new Anthropos, the new humanity. And it is this Eve church, the new Eve. We know Mary is the new Eve, but Mary is also the personification of the church. This new Eve comes out of Christ's side in the same way that the Genesis Eve came out of Adam's side, the new Adam and the new Eve. There are those chosen especially by God who look on this new Eve and what happened to the original Adam happens to them. And they say, 
this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And they are those who are called to the consecrated life. It's a nuptial mystery too. As a priest friend of mine said, somebody has to love the church most of all. So it's a nuptial mystery, whether it's expressed in its natural form or in its consecrated form. It's a great nuptial mystery. Now, the problem is, well, let's, let's, let's put it this way. In our time, the bells have been silenced or drowned out by noise. But if you look at this painting, you, you see a picture of the nuptial mystery in action. The nuptial mystery is Trinitarian. It it's, has a Trinitarian structure. The man and the woman have their heads bowed. The, the bell has its eschatological, has created its eschatological awakening. And the structure here is the orientation to God and the orientation to each other. So it's a, it's a Trinitarian structure. And this is the great mystery. The bell contributes to that. Uh, and that nuptial mystery is always, in its grace-filled fullness, is always a Trinitarian mystery. So in many ways, the nuptial mystery is for our age what the bell was for early, early 20th century Russian countryside. The nuptial mystery is at the very heart of our faith and of our uh, understanding of reality, or it should be, because it is, it's simply the manifestation of the Trinity in our lives. Whereas in the early, early 20th century Russia, the attack was on the bells as the sacramental uh, sign of the Christian community. In our time, the attack is on the nuptial mystery. And all of the logic is in place to begin to weaken it, break it down. Many people not realizing that it is an attack on the heart of our faith, not primarily for simply moral reasons, or even simply cultural reasons, but for fundamentally theological reasons. That if we, if that mystery is allowed to be compromised, watered down, dismissed, become indistinguishable from any other kind of happenstantial relationship, and so on and so forth, a tremendous loss occurs from which we may not be able to, of course, we can recover the Holy Spirit, the church will, you know, God, Christ will be with us till the end of the age. Don't worry, it's not going to go away. The obituary on Christianity has been written so many times and it's never been fulfilled. So we can count on it being around, but nevertheless, great, great uh, sufferings and losses will occur to the extent that we allow this mystery uh, to be compromised in our time. So it is up to us to, to understand how essential it is 
It is it's the depiction of the mystery of our own human existence. Now we are, it's important to remember here for a second, we're going to talk about the mystery of the person later. Uh, we are persons from the moment of conception. Because a person, in the sense we'll talk about later, is someone who is responding to a call. And the fertilized embryo, the instant it's fertilized, responds to the call as best it can. It responds actually better than you and I respond on a day-to-day basis because it responds totally. And its way of responding, his I should say his or her way, because it's already determined, it's not a it, it's a he or she, uh, but its way of responding is simply to cling to life, to say yes to life. God has called that person at the moment of conception, and it responds by saying yes to life. That's all it has to say. Later on, it can be catechized and respond in more elaborate ways, more mature ways. But it will probably never respond as fully and totally as it does in its embryonic stage because it responds perfectly by saying yes to life. So we're persons from the moment of conception. But that personhood remains to be actualized. It's already there ontologically. But it remains to be actualized in those moments that are like the moment in Genesis when Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the one in this moment that I can give my life to, that I can say yes to. So this is the the ontological birth of humanity. All of us have had this experience, but perhaps we don't understand its centrality and how important it is to our faith. So I'm, I mention these things because we will we'll draw on them some more. You know there's the Holy Spirit because at the very moment when the Western world was imploding in so many ways, especially in response to the sexual revolution. We think the sexual revolution had to do just with sex. It's not about sex. The sexual revolution is not fundamentally about sex. Or you could say, maybe a better way to say it was to be the, the, the failure, the, the lie that the sexual revolution tells us is that sex is, is only about sex. Uh, it has missed the grace and, and the true meaning of nuptiality. At the very moment that, this, that the West was awash in that revolution, John Paul II decided to give a series of lectures uh, on a topic that he'd been thinking about for a while, which later became the theology of the body. And it's so marvelous because everybody is, you know, we, today we are ready to change all, uh, we, we think on the basis of the last 20 years, We've got it figured out. We know what it's all about. And so on the basis of the last 20 years, we can just change everything. 
Forget the fact that for the last five or 10,000, people didn't buy it. Well, that's okay because on the basis of the last 20 years, we've got it figured out. We're going to change everything, change all the furniture on the basis of that experience. Well, and so who walks on the scene? He doesn't walk on the scene. He hobbles on the scene. Is this old man with Parkinson's. And he comes out on the world stage and he teaches us about the body. He's got one. He's hanging on the cross, literally sometimes. You see what I mean? His is falling apart. Somebody once asked him, how are you feeling? He said, from, from the neck down, I mean, from the neck up, fine. <laughs> so he comes out on the world stage, hobbles out to teach us about the body and to teach us about sexuality. This celibate, 80-year-old celibate with Parkinson's disease is going to teach us about the body and sexuality. Are you kidding? (laughs) Couldn't have been more timely because he brings us back to the central mystery of nuptiality, which is central not because it's about sex, It's central because it's about the reality of being a human being. And it's that that is the bell for our age that they're trying to take away. And if we let that go, we'll still have the creed, but we will lost one of the very central keys for transforming that creed into lived experience. We'll still believe in the Trinity, but we will have abandoned one of the most powerful opportunities we have in this life to enter into it. Okay, well, now this is the hardest part because I'm going to shrink into just a few minutes something that should take us a week, and that is to talk about cultural harmonization, the point at which human culture comes into being. And this is the subject of Rene Girard's lifelong interest, and uh, it is a very complicated business with very few moving parts, but still quite complicated. So I'm going to try to summarize it as best I can and I'm relying on Rene Girard's work. I will not be constantly saying the word Girard, but I might as well be. First of all, we have to realize that we can't be humans without culture. That's why culture is so important to us, the culture of the church and the culture of the world in which the, co- of the church uh, is, um, is hosted. So we have to pay, pay a careful attention to the culture of the church, the, cult- the Christian culture as such, and the culture of the world in which Christian culture is uh, having its leavening effect, one hopes. So the question of culture is connected to the question of humanity. You cannot have uh, a human, you cannot have a sustained human environment without a culture. That's what a culture is. So where did it come from? Uh, first of all, the essential ingredient of a culture is peace, some kind of peace between people and uh, some way of sustaining that peace over a period of time. There's a lot of, uh, there have been theories about when 
we humans became peaceful and under what conditions. And many of those theories uh, are, don't hold water. The two main ones being that we have been violent all along and the only way we can have peace is to have it imposed by some tyrannical power. And this is basically Thomas Hobbes' theory of humanity. And then, on the other hand, the other extreme at least, you have Rousseau, uh, who's, who's a romantic, who says, oh, no, it was, everything was lovey-dovey way back then, and it just got bad when we became civilized and had to suffer the, the discontents of civilization. And, of course, neither of those really holds up. And it was not, I think, until René Girard in the 1960s and 70s offered another proposal and that's what I'm going to share with you right now. First thing we have to say, and I'm going to do something that's not entirely quote-unquote Girardian in any kind of technical sense, but I think it might be helpful for us. I want to ask you to think about three things. One is appetite. Appetite is, is a natural thing. You, you want food. You want sexual gratification. You want sleep. Uh, you want shelter from the cold. Those are appetites, natural appetites. We have them as, as animals. And then there is something that is not in the Girardian vocabulary, but I would put it in to, in order to account for what we talked about in the last session. And that is the mystery that's summed up in the Genesis story when Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the word I would associate with that would be longing. Uh, longing is a special kind of experience. It's the preliminary experience of the thing longed for. Uh, so it is, a, it is a longing for something, but one has already begun to experience that for which one is longing. Uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual phenomenon. So I think that's very important for understanding the nuptial mystery that we talked about in the earlier session. But then there's something that Girard would call desire. We use the word desire all the time, uh, but it has a special meaning in René Girard's uh, anthropology. So I would ask you to, uh, it's an old uh, cliche of mine, I say take, search your hard drive for all the references to desire that have a Freudian connotation. Highlight and delete. Because... <laughs> Because uh, it's not that. We're talking about desire of another sort. We're talking about metaphysical desire. The key to Girard's anthropological analysis is what he calls mimesis. It simply means imitation. We are imitative creatures. This is the most important thing to understand about us. Now, don't let me forget to talk about the theological implications of that. But right now, I just want to talk about the anthropological implications of that. We have to be mimetic creatures. We have to be imitative creatures because in order to become, to fulfill our human vocation, we have to develop language and a lot of very subtle and complex skills that we can only learn through mimetic uh, processes, by imitating, by hearing. Well, this is the way we learn language. Can you imagine? A child of seven having a vocabulary that some children of seven have without mimesis? 
You cannot do it. They learn it. We learn from each other. We imitate each other all the time. Imitation is the way we humans function. So this sounds fine. It sounds, uh, we think of imitation as something that's very nice. We see someone we like, so we imitate them. And uh, this is very nice. It's flattering and, and so on and so forth. But what uh, Gerard brings out and what Shakespeare brings out and so many other Homer even, Virgil, uh, what the great poets bring out, and the, those who had tremendous insight into the, the human predicament, uh, is that uh, imitation leads to conflict. And the, the classic scenario here is imagine now, let's imagine a proto-human a community of primates. Now, we, remember, we're, we're talking about crossing the human threshold at the most profound level using the Genesis story. It's when the, the, the man and the woman look into each other's eyes and say, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But now we're talking about something social, the, the social construction of a culture. So before you get there, you have these, uh, these higher primates very mimetic. We use the word ape to talk about mimesis. We say somebody apes some, somebody else and so on. So they're very mimetic. Uh, one reaches for an object of appetite, a banana, a coconut, a sexual partner. And if it's the only banana, coconut, or sexual partner around, uh, or the lo loveliest of them, uh, it will cause... Another, looking on, the gesture of acquisition will awaken a desire in the other because the gesture of acquisition designates the object as desirable. And this can happen independently of the desirability of the object. I start with appetite, which presupposes a, a natural desire for this object. But it needn't to be that way. It could be anything. Uh, and if I had more time, I'd give you all kinds of very funny examples of this, which we can recognize in our own lives. It, when, the, when the advertisers on uh, Madison Avenue show us something desirable and make us want to go buy it, uh, we didn't wake up that morning desiring it. We didn't know it even existed until we saw the ad. And then we saw somebody else enjoying it. And the person enjoying it was the kind of person we'd like to be. Beautiful, prosperous, uh, well-liked, and so on and so forth. So we think, well, maybe I'll get one of those. So this is just the way mimetic desire works. Well, the creature reaches for this object, and the other creature, admiring this uh, creature number one, thinks, I too would like to have that object, and not too many of them around. I think I'll reach for it. That's imitation. So, imitation, if you think it's, if, remember we say imitation is the highest form of flattery. The problem is you're flattering this guy. You want to be like him. You want to have that same thing. But suddenly you're rivals. Shakespeare's filled with this story, this paradigm. The two, the two friends, lifelong friends, they love everything. They love the same thing. They love the same sports. They love the same you know, the team, they love anything. They're all together like that, and then suddenly you fall in love with the same woman. That's a problem. Then they become the worst enemies. So the two reach for this object, and by reaching for it, they now I'll, I'll switch to my standard, I apologize. 
example of this, which is the nursery. The nursery, little children come to be taken care of every day. First child comes in, lots of toys and no other child in the room. Bored to death, sits down, a teddy bear is there. He's, he's playing with the ears of the teddy bear. He's not interested, he's bored to death, waiting for his playmates to come. Second child comes into the room. What, cho- what toy does this second child want? The teddy bear. There, there are dozens of toys, but the second child goes for the teddy bear, reaches for it. The first child says, go ahead, I wasn't interested. No. The first child grabs it and says, no, I want it. The second child says, no, I wanted it first. First child said, no, I, I wanted it first. And they pull it. Who wanted it first? Neither of them wanted it really until the other one wanted it. Mimetic desire. Mimetic desire creates conflict. They're pulling the child apart. Now you have a scene that's structurally identical to the Judgment of Solomon story in the Old Testament. The two prostitutes are claiming the same child. Solomon says, I'll solve this, I'll cut it in half. The one mother says, fine, I would rather have it dead than have her have it. This is called being scandalized. If we have time, we could talk about the word scandal. In other words, defeating the rival is more important than obtaining the object over which the rivalry is supposed to be being fought. That is when you were scandalized. When you would rather defeat the rival than actually have the object which is the ostensible purpose of the rivalry. So the first prostitute says, fine, cut it in half. The second one says, no, give it to her. I would rather have her have it and it live than me have it. Rene Girard read that. It turned his research around. He said he had absorbed all of uh, the anthropological research. He said there's no text like this in antiquity. The same a text of similar antiquity, nothing like this. This text recognizes that we have two forms of sacrifice and only two. We can solve our problems sacrificially by occasionally, by eliminating the object, sacrificially eliminating the object, throwing the virgin into the volcano. Same story. Do you see that? Throw the virgin into the volcano. That'll solve the problem. Of the two, what if what if the what if uh, the Greeks and the Trojans had decided to throw Helen into the volcano? No Trojan War. It's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. Guess who said that? You begin to see how these things converge. So one one of the claimants to the child in the Old Testament story says, "No," Gerard says. You have two forms of sacrifice, blood sacrifice and self-sacrifice. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. So I got ahead of myself because we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But so you have you have we are mimetic no matter what we try to tell ourselves sometimes. A lot of times we try to pretend not to be mimetic. So we do it on the sly. Or we imitate somebody who we think is not imitating somebody. And so that makes us feel like we're being unique and individual. <laughs> it's kind of like Rousseau. You know, Rousseau t- tried to be the most unique person and, and began his, he began his autobiography by saying, I'm not imitating anybody and never have, and et cetera, et cetera. And all of Europe began to imitate him. 
because they were so intoxicated by this idea that a person might be able to be immune from invitation. We are not. We believe in the communion of saints because we know that we have to have models and that our, our lives are profoundly informed by the lives of others. And I said last night, we wouldn't be here without our great-grandparents passing on and passing on down to us. Those are not just passing on the creed. It's passing on an example of a well-lived Christian life. That's why we're here today. That's what, that what, that's what brings us here. We are the products of good mimesis, good imitation. But imitation can lead to conflict. And when it leads to conflict, you have the two children pulling at the teddy bear. They'll tear it apart. If the mother says, or the teacher, let Johnny have it for 10 minutes and Tommy for 10 minutes, they wouldn't stay interested for 10 minutes because their interest is only based on their rivalry. So uh, how do you solve it? Now, if you take in, in the nursery, there's a parent or a teacher. In the ancient world, there wasn't. How are you going to solve this problem? They start to fight. The more they fight, the more the object appears in the eyes of others as a very desirable object. All these people are fighting over it. It's like Helen in the Trojan War. She must be the most beautiful. She must be the face that launched a thousand ships because look at all those people that are dying in order to bring her back. You see what I mean? So everybody gets into it. And you have chaos. So how do you solve the chaos? How do you create peace? Peace is created uh, in, um, instinctively. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word instinctively because it's a social process and not a, and not a biological process. But it's a natural outworking of mimesis. Because in a, in a war of all against what Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, people will be lashing out at one another in all directions. But the more you're caught up in that chaos, the more imitative you become, the more suggestible the situation is. So that we know from social science data that, that a crisis-ridden society is incredibly prone to suggestion. So when people panic, uh, they move in a certain direction because they see somebody moving there, and suddenly everybody is moving in that direction. So it's trem we're tremendously predisposed to mimetic suggestions the more we're caught up in a, in a crisis. In this violence that swirls out of mimetic uh, desire, somebody makes what I'm going to call an accusation, points the finger, every, every blow you, you, you deliver is an accusation, you know, so the accusation would be physical or verbal, and we're really talking about the birth of language anyway, so it's a little anachronistic for me to talk about a verbal accusation. But in any event, somebody will make a gesture, uh, an accusatory gesture that will be emphatic enough and persuasive enough on the, those most suggestible people in his vicinity that others will pick up on it. In other words, the accusatory gesture will be imitated in the same way that the acquisitive gesture was imitated. You see what I mean? The acquisitive gesture is this one, and it's imitated, and it gives rise to conflict. The accusatory gesture is this one, and it too is imitated. You see what I mean? But notice the difference. When the acquisitive gesture is imitated, you have conflict. When the accusatory gesture is imitated, 
you have camaraderie. You see? You have, you have people joining together in that accusation. And the, and the shift from the war of all against all to the war of all against one takes place in a heartbeat. So powerful if it's really a panic-stricken world. And suddenly all of that violence which was going in all directions goes in one. And when it vents itself on that one, the killing of that one, or the expelling of that one, is the first experience of social unanimity. What Gerard calls unanimity minus one. You see? So we have peace. And the first experience of peace, and it must have been breathtaking in the first instance because these, these are creatures who have never experienced that kind of social solidarity. Suddenly, out of chaos, in a very abrupt way, there's peace. And it must have, and it was so abrupt and so shocking in a way that it was interpreted religiously. I say religiously, we're talking about the birth of religion. So when I say the word religion, when I said the word about desire, eliminate all the Freudian connotations. When I say the word religion, uh, eliminate all the nice, lovely thoughts you have about sitting in a hushed uh, church. <laughs> we're talking about archaic religion, which is saturated with violence and blood. Uh, so, but it, it was a profound moment, a moment that is still, though peaceful, still saturated with a kind of, with a kind of uh, uh, terror. Something just happened that brought us together. What is it that that we just experienced? And then you get all of the mythologies of the world. What is it we just experienced? Obviously, we didn't do this. What happened? Something must have happened. Something intervened here. And now we feel bonded. It's a very strange thing. Where did this come from? It must have come from elsewhere. And it must have come, it obviously happened at this moment in this circumstance. It must have, it must be a response to what we just did. And what did we just do? This corpse lying there in the middle of us. Somehow, when we did that, this happened to us. And very often, and this is too complicated to get into now, they divinized this victim. They made a god out of this victim. I have some great anthropology stories if we had time. Anyway, but in any case, they come to the conclusion, which is the most natural conclusion, which is, if we're going to have this peace, then when we become rancorous or just on a regular basis, we have to repeat that act. So we have to sacrifice. We have to do that to someone else. Now, where are we going to get this someone else? Uh, from among us, maybe. Maybe there's some creatures over there and we can make raids on them and bring one in and sacrifice him. Way later on, maybe we can substitute an animal and so on and so forth. But we have to repeat that act. We have to spill that blood. 
And in the cathartic, now the two words I wanted you to think about, in addition to the three words we started with, which is, which is appetite, longing, and desire, desire is metaphysical. Longing is spiritual. Desire is metaphysical because it doesn't have to do with uh, the physicality of an appetite. Uh, nor does it have to do with the deep spirituality of a longing. But it's metaphysical. You desire it for reasons that are metaphysical, not physical. But the other words I wanted you to think about are scandal. Scandal, to be the simplest version of scandal, is when you would rather defeat your rival than have the object over which the rivalry is, is supposed to be happening. And the, the other word is catharsis. Catharsis means to purge, uh, to purge oneself of the toxins, of the poisons. And the cathartic experience is at the heart of archaic religion. Cathartic experience is the, the elimination of these violent passions that overtake us sinful human beings when we become conflictual and when the conflict uh, rises to the level of scandal and in which case we would rather kill than have the other uh, attain the, the object of desire and so on. Catharsis is extremely important for understanding archaic religion and the birth of culture. It's the, it's the draining away of all of our passions and the key to catharsis is a, a, an event that is so powerful and shocking that it causes, first of all, the, the event has to arouse the passions that are in our hearts, the, mimetic, the passions that are born of mimetic desire in the conflict. You have to arouse those passions, and then you have to purge them. Archaic religion... Ritual, the archaic rituals were designed to awaken our, our conflictual passions and to intensify them to a certain pitch and then to, and then to provide a cathartic experience which eliminates them. So very often in archaic uh, cultures, a ritual will begin with a kind of mock warfare or a conflict uh, a, a conflict between two moieties within a tribe or something like that where the for example the the, the warriors in the two uh, two uh, tribal configurations will butt chests and shake spears and and uh, be in a war dance with each other which awakens all these passions and then a, a sacri- and then the, the ritual turns there's a sacrificial victim and all of those passions on both sides are drained out in that very shocking, it has to be a shocking event. And suddenly it's drained out. My classic example of that is going to see a movie like like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or something like that. It's one of these movies where, you know, you're, it's, it, it's what Aristotle is talking about when he's talking about catharsis. You, you awaken these passions and then you drain them out. And when you do... You walk out of this theatrical experience. Aristotle said to the Greek tragedians, look, if you awaken those passions and you don't re- resolve it cathartically, then it's going to spill out into the streets of Athens and become 
to speak anachronistically, a post-game blowout. You know what a post-game blowout is? Post-game blowout is when you didn't solve it on the field. You didn't resolve it on the field. And they pour out. You don't have enough uh, ritual wherewithal to resolve it inside the theater. It spills out. So to resolve, to, to resolve it, it has to be a profound experience. If you come out of Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan, you're, if you're like me, you, you know that you're quite moved by those films. And you come out of them, and you walking next to this person you've never seen before in your life, and you feel somehow bonded because you just experienced that thing together. That's a little tiny version of the cathartic experience. And it, all the little things, you go into the theater and you're, you know, you're worried about some conflict you had at work or some with a family member and all these, so you have all these things in your head, you come out and none of that matters. That's gone. It's been purged. It's a purging experience. This is archaic religion. But it, at the heart of it is sacrifice. Somebody has to be sacrificed. You may be empathetic with that person, or even if you're empathetic with that person, it purges you. Uh, so it's a it's a sacrificial event, regardless of your where you stand on it. So that's the world now. So that's the heart of culture. This was Gerard's great insight. This is what generates culture. This is what we rely on for conventional cultural life. Periodically, mimetic uh, processes cause us to fall into conflict. And to resolve that conflict, we have to vent the violence that's generated by the mimetic dynamic. The next thing we need to talk about is uh, how to, uh, not how to extricate ourselves, but how we have been and are being extricated from that. The Greeks had a, ancient Greeks had a, a process, the center of which was a, a figure called the pharmakos. The pharmakos was a, uh, in some ancient Greek uh, situations, you have, a, you have a, a collection of expendable victims. That is to say, they're, they're, they're derelicts, uh, they're prisoners of war, uh, they're cripples, they're somehow marked, people who are marked in some way, like Oedipus, you know, he has a limp, uh, and, and so on. You have these characters that are marked who become very easy scapegoats uh, because of their mark. And so they may be mentally uh, uh, afflicted or they may have been, they may have be uh, ne'er-do-wells of some kind, but you have a group of them. And you kind of hold in the in the pharmacon system, you have them kind of housed someplace for to take off the shelf when needed, and uh, to to say take off the shelf already gives away the story because uh, this word pharmacos is the root of our word pharmacy. In other words, this is the medicine uh, that you take in order to cure these uh, these social crises. Uh, when there's a crisis uh, that brews in the society, uh, you take one of these uh, 
pharmakos characters, and you parade him through, and he, his his presence, and of course, uh, parading him around, he's uh, he's the object of great derision on the part of everybody. And as you parade this character through the through the village, it's like a magnet taking onto itself all the metal filings of the passions, the excess passions that are at work in the society. And then he is executed or expelled, and the poisons are gone. That's, that, that's the pharmacological solution to human sinfulness. That's how we humans have solved the problem of human sin on our own. We had our own recipe for solving the problem of human sin. We didn't know. We didn't even know the word sin. It, it, we had to wait for the Jews to discover sin. Some people lament the fact that they did, but it's the greatest discovery, the second greatest discovery in the world. <laughs> the second greatest discovery in the world. You see what I mean? But we humans had a solution for it. We had a pharmacological solution for it. And that is it's still operating. It doesn't function as well. And we'll talk about it doesn't function as well because of the biblical tradition, especially Christianity. We'll get to that. So we have these words, appetite, longing, desire. You can talk about those in your small group. Uh, we have the word farm, a scandal. Rather kill, I'd rather kill my opponent, see him dead, than to have, him, than to have the object of desire. And the word uh, pharmacos or pharmacon, which has to do with uh, humanity's own sinful way of solving sin. Sinful way of solving the problem of sin. And perpetuating the kingdoms of this world. All the kingdoms of this world are built on one or another of the forms, and there are many, of the, of the phenomenon I just tried to describe. That's Gerard 101 in a very inadequate uh, summary.